Will it go away without the vaccine? Sure. You'll develop herd, like a herd mentality. <laughs> herd mentality is what your supporters have, Donald Trump. It is not how you cure COVID. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Idiot. I got the feeling that something right. Just the dope. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. But he's our dope. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. <laughs> Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. And Desi Doyen, we have got so much to cover today that Donald Trump's stupid uh, town hall on ABC <laughs> on uh, Tuesday night or yes, whatever that was. Yes, bonkers, incoherent, rambling town hall where he was clearly unprepared to answer any question outside of the bubble of Fox News. Yes, that one? Yes, that one. Actually, I was going to say I'm not even going to cover it, but you just did a fantastic <laughs> job. Well done. Thank you, Desi Doyen. Let's start instead here after two days of spinning less than 150 miles off the coast of Alabama, Florida and Mississippi. Hurricane Sally finally made its move to come on shore early on Wednesday morning, intensifying along the way and now slowly, very slowly crawling inland as its torrential rains deluge eastern Alabama and southwestern Georgia. Historic and catastrophic flooding is the way it's being described by the National Hurricane Center. They're saying that is unfolding right now as we go to air. Even though we, uh, well, we'll hopefully be speaking with a guest in Georgia a little bit later if she survives the floodwaters oh, at this man. point. As the storm made landfall as a Category 2 near Gulf Shores, Alabama, it unleashed gusts of over 100 miles per hour and cut power to more than a half a million customers in Alabama and in Florida in the Panhandle. But with a storm like this, uh, the winds and the coastal flooding, that may be the last of the worries right now anyway. The, the storm surge which is the rise in ocean water above normally dry land, has inundated Pensacola in nearly six feet of water. That's the third highest level on record. But as AP describes it right now in their lead on the storm, uh, Hurricane Sally, uh, the winds and the rain 
The rainfall is measuring now in feet, not in inches. Swamping homes, forcing the rescue of hundreds of people as it's pushing inland for what could be a slow and disastrous drenching across the deep south, Des. And when they're talking about drenching, they are not kidding. It was a mind-boggling rainfall of two feet at Pensacola. And it's really unusual, meteorologists say, to have rainfall from a hurricane at first measured in feet rather than inches, as AP pointed out. And, you know, it's going three miles per hour. You could walk faster than this hurricane is going, which means it has extra time to dump all that rain and continue to make the flooding as bad as possible. And as you noted, uh, water rescues are now underway. Uh, As we go to air, at least 377 people have been rescued from flooded homes, Mm -hmm. and many people didn't have time to evacuate because this spun up very fast. Rapid intensification of hurricanes is increasing with man-made global warming. There's widespread damage. A section of a brand new bridge called the Three Mile Bridge in Pensacola is just gone. That bridge cost $400 million to build. Parts of buildings were ripped off and there are now flash flood warnings and watches for Alabama, Florida and Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina so please be careful out there people do not drive across flooded roadways. They're very dangerous and uh, going forward though there's actually more hurricanes in the pipeline as we've been discussing. Fantastic. Um, They're uh, Hurricane Teddy. It is potentially going to be a category four. It is right now Mm. headed toward Bermuda. It's too early to say it's hurricane track for certain, but it is possible some of the models are showing that it might hit New England. I actually counted seven storms right now that could become hurricanes in the Atlantic uh, behind Sally. I think five of which are already uh, hurricanes are close already to it. Already named storms. Named and, storms, yeah. And yeah. so we are very likely to hit the Greek alphabet for naming our because storms. Because we've run out of regular yes, uh, letters. Exactly. Yeah. So within the next week or so. And uh, also mm. there's an interesting warning from a University of North Carolina meteorologist, Eric Webb. He warns that the smoke from the western fires actually could have implications for the development of Hurricane Teddy in the Atlantic. Really? Yes. Uh, there's. It uh, has to do with the injection, as he calls it, the injection of black carbon from the western fires into the atmosphere could contribute to intensifying Teddy because black carbon absorbs the sun's heat and that direct radiative oh, forcing... Man in the wildfire smoke could actually contribute. So just a reminder that hurricane season lasts through November 30th. That means it will be ongoing through Election Day on November 3rd. Yeah, we got a long way to go in this storm season. We're almost already out of letters. Uh, By the way, there there was a replica of the uh, Christopher Columbus ship uh, Nina that had been docked at Pensacola at the waterfront. It's now missing. Mm. The storm also ripped away a large section of a fishing pier at Alabama's Gulf State Park. Not a complete surprise, except it happens to have been on the very day that a ribbon-cutting ceremony had been scheduled following a $2.5 million renovation. Oh, my. There was uh, more than 40 people were trapped by high water, were rescued within one single hour, including a family of four in a tree. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, AP, uh, after doing a, a, a kind of sort of a ter- terrible job of it recently, tossed this line into their coverage today, quote, like the wildfires raging on the West Coast, the onslaught of hurricanes has focused attention on climate change, which scientists say is causing slower, rainier, more powerful and more destructive storms. Well, you add that to uh, what's going on on the West Coast. 
You got Sally with uh, more on the way. Thousands of folks in Louisiana are still without power, by the way, from Hurricane Laura. That was about three weeks ago during the Republican National Convention. Many are still living in shelters. And then, yeah, these record climate change fueled fires out here burning through uh, millions of acres and entire communities up and down the West Coast. And Donald Trump goes to California to declare that, you know, like the covid crisis, climate change will just magically go away and that science doesn't actually know what it's talking about. In the middle of all of that, and as you say, the storm, the firestorms out west could be converging with the uh, hurricane storms <laughs> yes, coming wacky. in. In the middle of all of that, David LaGates, who has made a career of denying the science behind climate change, he has now uh, got a new job at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environmental Observations and Prediction at NOAA. LaGates was formerly the state of Delaware's climatologist until he was asked to step down in 2011 for attempting to undermine the science behind climate change. That's good for uh, the Donald Trump uh, 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 administration, apparently. That uh, let's that, get that guy. Let's, he's perfect for that. He's a, the suspicion is yeah. that he has been hired on to distort and weaken the national climate assessment, which is due out in a couple of years. He's an affiliate of the Heartland Institute, which uh, Green News Report fans over the years may recall <laughs> as the right-wing think tank that famously purchased billboards comparing environmentalists to. Charlie Manson and the Unabomber. Seriously, he was uh, given the Courage in Defense of Science Award from the group at their 10th International Conference on Climate Change back in 2015, which is actually their 10th International Conference on Climate Change Denial. Yep. But you get the idea. He said uh, when he received the award, he said the award signals, quote, that you have been beaten over the head by a bunch of thugs repeatedly and you have persevered. I guess you are one of those thugs, Desi Doyen. Apparently. <laughs> this group, this administration, all of this just makes me, reminds me of the election, to be honest. Because as, as of right now, that is the only thing that I believe is going to allow us to find a path to do anything about all of this, about this worsening climate crisis. Uh, so to that end, the uh, the final state primary of the year was held yesterday and there was a big hearing this week in federal court that could have a huge effect on what happens in the state of Georgia on November 3rd this year. Marilyn Marks will join us to discuss that remarkable hearing in a bit. But let's take a break and we'll come back with the last primary of the season in the great state of Delaware, where the results were a lot more fun than I had previously been warned. So stay tuned for that. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. 
You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. This is the end, beautiful friend. Yeah, this is the end. This is the end. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. This is the end of the primary season. Yay! Unless I find, unless I've missed something, which is always <laughs> possible these days, Tuesday saw the completion of the last state primary elections of the 2020 season. Finally, happily, I have not heard of problems at the polls for voters in the great state of Delaware, though it is always possible. We'll learn about them later for now. Across the state on Tuesday, Delaware voters who had not already cast their ballot by mail turned out to vote with masks on and socially distancing, according to Delaware Online. As we discussed a week or two ago, there were not many surprises expected in Delaware. But in fact, some of these results from Delaware are much more fun than I had been told to expect. Oh, good. I'm going to have to talk to Howie Klein about that. <laughs> he told me, oh, there's nothing. To, don't even pay attention to it. All right, we'll start here. Incumbent Governor John Carney easily won his Democratic primary for governor. Incumbent Democratic U.S. Senator Chris Coons also easily won his Democratic primary for U.S. Senate. On the Republican side of that race, however, Lauren Witzke, a right-wing activist who has uh, tweeted a QAnon slogan, used some of its hashtags, and has been pictured wearing a T-shirt featuring the conspiracy theory. She won the GOP primary for the U.S. Senate in Delaware on Tuesday. She defeated uh, attorney James DiMartino on Tuesday night by a roughly 14-point margin. DiMartino's defeat came after... Uh, securing the support of establishment Republicans in the race. And Donald Trump's QAnon-loving base apparently loves Witzke. Uh, she held campaign rallies behind an America First message that advocates for a 10-year moratorium on all immigration. Mm. The uh, self-described staunch Republican and loyal supporter of Donald Trump faces a tough climb, however, against the state's popular incumbent, Senator Chris Coons, uh, who himself beat back a progressive challenger in his Tuesday primary. Witzke now says that she stopped promoting the QAnon theory, which has been labeled by the FBI as a domestic terror threat. She told uh, AP in January, quote, I certainly think it's more hype than substance. OK, although she is not the only GOP candidate to embrace the QAnon theory. GOP House candidate Marjorie Taylor Greene has expressed support for it. She was lauded by Trump as a rising Republican star. She's now running unopposed in Georgia for a U.S. House seat in a deep red district that she will win. Senator Coons, a uh, Joe Biden ally uh, in Delaware, has served in the Senate since 2010 when he was first elected to take over Biden's seat when the now Democratic presidential nominee was tapped as vice president. Also of note in Delaware's, uh, in their, I guess, their last in the nation primary <laughs> on Tuesday, 
Delaware State Senate candidate Sarah McBride, the national press secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, won her Democratic primary race on Tuesday night, setting her up to be the first openly transgender person to become a state senator. Nice. As the race was called on Tuesday night with McBride re- uh, receiving some 91% of the vote over her challenger, she tweeted, quote, Tonight sends a powerful signal that candidates like me can win. Everyone deserves to see themselves in government, to follow their dreams and to be accepted by their community. I will never take for granted the honor of carrying that mantle. With the seat now in a safely blue district, this is a state Senate seat, McBride is expected to win the general election easily come November, which will uh, at this point be largely a formality for her. There are currently four openly transgender state lawmakers right now around the country, all of whom are House legislators, state house legislators. That includes uh, Reps uh, Lisa Bunker and Jerry Cannon of New Hampshire, Rep Brianna Titone in Colorado, and Delegate Danya Roem in uh, Virginia. All Democrats, for some reason, as it turns out. I don't know why. Gosh, what would the reason for that be? I don't know. McBride has uh, close ties to Democratic presidential candidate and fellow Delaware ex-lawmaker Joe Biden, who penned the foreword for McBride's memoir in 2017. But wait, there's more. <laughs> and frankly, I, I had no idea that Delaware was actually this fun, to be frank. An incumbent Democratic state lawmaker who opposed same-sex marriage has been defeated by, wait for it, a gay drag queen in Delaware. (laughs) That's great. 12-year state legislative incumbent Earl Jacques Jr. Now, mind you, he's not the gay one, (laughs) even with a name like that. Uh, Jacques Jr., Uh, has sat in the Delaware House of Representatives since 2009. He lost out to progressive challenger Eric Morrison, who is a popular local drag queen who performs as Anita Mann. (laughs) Morrison claimed 61% of the vote in Tuesday's Democratic primary for House District 27, while Jacques received just under 39% of the vote. That's right. Jacques lost by 22 points. During the campaign, Jacques had attempted to attack his opponent for performing in drag at a fundraiser. Jacques told local media, that is so far off base for our district. It's unbelievable. You wonder what the point is. You can have fundraisers. I don't care about that. But dressing in drag? Really? Yes, really, Mr. Jacques. Uh, The uh, point, apparently, when he asked what's the point, was to beat you in a 22-point landslide. (laughs) Jacques uh, had claimed about Morrison. He said, quote, I'm not sure he represents the people who attend those places of religion. If he's actually having a fundraiser in drag, I don't think those churches would endorse that. Well, as it turns out, more than 60 percent of Democratic voters have no issue with drag queens, it seems. But they do take some issue with bigotry, according to Pink News, who reported on this story today. As Morrison's campaign noted, the lawmaker, quote, 
uh, voted, uh, he's talking about Jacques, uh, he, Jacques voted against same-sex marriage in 20, uh, 2013, and he refused to vote yes or no on banning the barbaric practice of conversion therapy for Delaware's LGBT minors back in 2013. And now it seems he has finally paid a political price for it in 22020. So, as I said, who knew Delaware was so much fun? A transgender to the Senate, a drag queen uh, to the House. Pretty cool. Uh, And with that glorious uh, story, we finally move from the 2020 primaries, which are now officially over. That's it. Well, we'll see. You know, there could still be reports from uh, problem reports counting the ballots in Delaware. There could be some territories that I haven't taken into mind uh, who still have primaries. I don't know. But I think that's it. So we move from the 2020 primaries to the 2020 general election, which I'm sure will be much easier than the primaries, much less dramatic and totally problem free. Right. Hey, speaking of the 2020 general election and yes, problems, Georgia. Do I need to say any more? (laughs) Okay, I'll say a little bit more. Uh, But my guest, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, she will be here to say much more on this as uh, this week, three days of hearings in federal court finally wrapped up in her case, challenging the use of Georgia's brand new 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that we have been talking about for years now on this show. She just had the hearing before the federal court. It wrapped up just about seven weeks before Election Day and just about four weeks before early voting begins in the Peach State, where the presidential contest right now is pretty much up for grabs. It's essentially a statistical tie in the pre-election polling average between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. According to Real Clear Politics and their average, Donald Trump is up 1.5 percent in the average. So that state is very much in play this year, not just for the presidential race, but because there are two, count them, two Republican U.S. Senate seats that are both on the ballot. One normal U.S. Senate race and uh, one special election for the U.S. Senate. Both of those seats are considered vulnerable to being flipped by Democrats this year. And so with all of that going on, the federal judge who ordered Georgia's old unverifiable touchscreen voting systems to be scrapped, finding that it was insecure and unverifiable and thus unconstitutional. Well, that same federal judge is now considering whether the state's new touchscreen systems are just as bad as the old ones and also need to be replaced with verifiable hand-marked paper ballots just before the 2020 elections. Uh, Unless she has been swamped yet by Hurricane Sally as it moves into Georgia, Marilyn Marks will join us next to explain how the hearing went this week, how her experts did on the stand versus the ones brought by the state, and on how the federal hearing on computer security was interrupted last week by a computer security breach. Yes, right in the middle of the federal hearing. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 
100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. When the devil finished, Johnny said, Well, you're pretty good, old son. But sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done. Fire on the mountain, run, boys, run. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was sort of like the experts on one side of this case in Georgia versus the experts, the so-called experts on the state side of the case in Georgia. Well, let me, uh, so this whole case, uh, at least the, the recent hearings in this case, did not get off to a good start. Or I don't know, maybe it did, depending on how one looks at it. A federal hearing on a challenge to, among other things, the security of Georgia's computerized voting systems was interrupted last Friday when someone began posting video and symbols during the federal court's live Zoom session of this hearing, including images from the September 11 attacks, a swastika, pornography. Yes, that's right. Just in case anyone needed a reminder about how vulnerable to malicious attack almost all computer systems actually are, a federal court hearing on the computer security of voting systems and the dangers of malicious attacks was disrupted by a malicious attack of the federal court hearing. That seems just a bit spot on, actually, even for 2020, but there you have it. Uh, Before the interruption, there were roughly 100 people signed in as participants, observers to this high-profile hearing. It resumed via Zoom about an hour later with a virtual waiting room set up so that participants and observers had to be actually admitted by the court staff. The hearing in the long-running fight over Georgia's voting machines began Thursday afternoon. It continued Friday and wrapped up on Monday afternoon with some remarkable testimony from actual cybersecurity and voting systems experts. Also, uh, those who testified on behalf of the state's private voting system contractor, uh, Dominion Voting, uh, and uh, so-called experts on behalf of the state of Georgia and its woeful Republican Secretary of State, who selected the uh, Peach State's new $100 million unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, which are now being challenged after the same federal judge overseeing the latest hearing had found that Georgia's previous unverifiable touchscreen voting systems were outdated, were insecure, were unverifiable, and therefore unconstitutional for use in American elections, and she ordered them to be decertified. Those were the old systems. Well, what about the new ones? Election integrity activists and individual voters who filed the lawsuit against the new systems say that they are unaccountable and unverifiable and have security vulnerabilities resulting in an unconstitutional burden on the right to vote. Once again, just like the old systems, they've asked U.S. District Judge Amy Totenberg to order the state to use hand-marked paper ballots for the November election, which is coming up in, well, less than 50 days now. State officials argue that the new machines have been thoroughly tested and that the Security measures that they put in place will prevent any problems. They also say it would be costly and 
and too difficult to make a switch with so little time remaining before the general election. Well, Judge Totenberg is now considering whether to order Georgia to make those changes to change the way elections are run in the state with just seven weeks to go before November's general election day. Lawyers for election integrity advocates from the nonpartisan Coalition for Good Governance who filed a lawsuit challenging Georgia's election system, just like they did the old system. They say that Georgia's current system does not allow voters to have confidence that their vote is accurately counted, which they argue is unconstitutional. Lawyers for the state countered that Georgia has made great strides in recent years to update and secure its election infrastructure, though that's an argument that they have made for years, for the past 20 years. They've said that their systems are secure. There's nothing to worry about. So not even sure what great strides they could have made. And uh, they argue that the changes the plaintiffs are demanding would be extremely costly and difficult to implement with early voting set to start in just four weeks. As the three-day hearing on the election integrity and voting rights advocates' requests for immediate changes ended on Monday, Judge Totenberg did not indicate when she would rule, according to AP. Questions she asked throughout the hearing, however, and during the lawyer's closing statement, seemed to indicate that she was open to ordering at least some of the changes sought by plaintiffs. The lawsuit originally filed in June 2017 targeted the outdated paperless touchscreen voting machines that Georgia had used since 2002. The state last year bought a new election system that includes computer touchscreen machines that print a paper ballot that is then read by a separate computer scanner. But before those two computers can be used to cast even one single vote, Voters must pass muster with a computerized electronic poll book, which creates a, a, a plastic card that is placed into the touchscreen computer to allow the voters to vote before a computer printed ballot, which is printed either correctly or incorrectly by the computer. Who knows? Before that is scanned by the digital optical scan computer. And then after the close of polls, it is tallied by yet another computer at county headquarters. If all of those computers work, of course, a voter gets to vote in Georgia. Whether that vote is cast as per voter intent, unfortunately, can never be known, unlike with hand-marked paper ballots. The system was purchased from Dominion Voting Systems of Canada for more than $100 million. Judge Totenberg has been highly critical of the state in the past, saying election officials long ignored clearly evident problems with the old, now decertified touchscreen machines, as well as other glaring security holes in the state's election system. Robert McGuire, an attorney for the Coalition for Good Governance and individual voters in this case, recalled Totenberg's prior admonitions to the state in his closing argument. He noted that Totenberg previously told the state that a new voting system should address the need for, quote, transparent, fair, accurate and verifiable election processes that guarantee each citizen's fundamental right to cast an accountable vote. All of the evidence presented to the court shows that the state's new system using computer ballot marking devices instead of pen and paper, quote, satisfies none of these requirements, according to McGuire. 
In addition to asking Totenberg to order a switch to hand-marked paper ballots, McGuire also asked her to order the state to have paper poll book backups at every polling place to check voters in to ensure that every mark made by a voter on a ballot is counted or reviewed somehow and to ensure meaningful post-election audits. But the experts called by the plaintiffs testified during the hearing that the state's voting machines are insecure and cannot be secured. As evidence of insufficient hardening of election hardware, AP reports, McGuire pointed to testimony that games were found loaded on election computers in multiple counties. Really? You may recall that problems with Georgia's new electronic poll books contributed to hours-long lines uh, during the state's June primary election, a problem that could be exacerbated with larger in-person crowds expected during the general election, and that could be mitigated by paper backups, said McGuire. That is just a taste of the remarkable hearing that wrapped up this week in the federal courtroom in Atlanta in a case that... We have been covering on this show now for years as we are just weeks away from those systems being used for the very first time statewide in a general presidential election in Georgia, a state which many Democrats believe could finally flip from red to blue for the first time this year in decades and a state that has not one but two U.S. senatorial races also on the ballot this November along with everything else. Joining us now to discuss this week's hearing is the woman who has been joining us for years to discuss this case and so much more as it has slowly moved forward. Marilyn Marks is the executive director of one of the suit's plaintiffs, CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization committed to fair elections and government transparency. Oh, Marilyn, good golly. Welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much, Brad. It has been years, hasn't it, that we've been talking about this? Yeah, and you've had remarkable success along the way. You you got rid of the, the old systems that were used for 20 years, and now you're looking at these new systems. And now we're getting down to the wire for reals here uh, before the election. Right. I know you had some uh, remarkable experts testifying this week in the case, and I think all of them over the years have been on this program themselves multiple times. But before we get to that, the hearing itself on computer security was interrupted by a computer security breach of a sort. What what happened uh, last Friday, and, and how do you suspect that may have affected the judges or, or anybody else's uh, thinking here? Well, while we were all watching a, a Zoom court hearing, of mm-hmm. course, the federal court is not meeting in person right now, but mm-hmm. this was a three-day Zoom hearing on September the 11th. All of a sudden, one of the participants' screens seemed to take over, and there were fast-moving slides and video of, you know, burning World Trade Center, pornography, just all kinds of craziness Mm -hmm. that took over for a few minutes. And quite frankly, Brad, I have been so busy, I have not been able to read or inquire as to what they think caused this. Was this a targeted attack? Was this just some random 9-11, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, mischief? I don't really know. You may know more about that than I right now. But certainly it was sobering. 
to everyone watching, I think, and mm-hmm. probably to the court. And I think it was a very sobering reminder of just how vulnerable electronics are and just how targeted mm-hmm. the United States and our elections are right now. Yeah. And all the more reason that we need to not forget it and get hand-marked paper ballots yep. that are verifiable and auditable. So, and so I'm hopeful that, that it made an impression on mm-hmm. the public and certainly the court. I know it did. I uh, I know it did on the public because I know there was a lot of people who were just stunned when they saw that uh, news come over the wire uh, last week. I, I want to ask you about some of the claims made by the state of Georgia's attorney uh, representing uh, the state and Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger uh, and, and about the experts that they put on. But first, tell me about what your experts testified to and, and how you think that went over with the judge. I know you had some uh, great people like I said, folks, we've uh, had on this show uh, Philip Stark, uh, Alex uh, Halderman, Hari Hursty, uh, and so forth. How did it go? How were how how were they received by the court? Well, I, I think that anytime those people speak, I think their audience, be it a court or a school, a classroom, they recognize mm-hmm. people recognize the expertise and the dedication that these experts have. So I think that certainly the public learned a lot from these people who were the expert witnesses about just how seriously vulnerable the Georgia election system is. One of the things I was so proud of is that the expert witnesses gave extremely compelling testimony during the direct examination by our attorneys. Mm -hmm. But when the state's attorneys got them up on the stand for Mm cross-examination, they were equally strong. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, the the state was really not able to to get in any type of evidence, because there is none, that (laughs) would help get anyone comfortable with their equipment. And I was just so honored to be part of the team where Philip Stark, Hari Hursty, Kevin Scoglin, Alex Halderman, and then Jean DeFort, who's mm-hmm. been on your show. Yeah. I don't know if you read about her absolutely wonderful uh, testimony, mm-hmm. you know, as a citizen who she herself saw, as you have reported, Brad, it, she herself saw votes not being counted yep. because of ancient scanning technology yep. that was just purchased by the state. Yeah, and, uh, well, it, it's easy for your witnesses to do well under cross-examination when they're telling the truth and they know what the hell they're talking about. By contrast here, uh, I understand, <laughs> yeah. uh, you see where I'm going, uh, I understand, yes. well, well, one of the, the state's experts, or the, the voting machine company, uh, uh, Dominion Voting System, uh, uh, their experts, uh, did not do so well on the stand, as I understand it. Um, no, they did not. And we ended up saying in, in the courtroom that, hey, look, the state and their experts have not been able to tell the court just the basic fundamental operational and security details that the plaintiffs have been the ones who bring all the information. They 
the states basically had no one with any independence. They had no expert that signed on mm-hmm. to talk about this system. Every expert witness they had had a financial interest in mm-hmm. ballot marking devices. Two of the expert witnesses are vendors. Three of the expert witnesses are vendors as ballot marking device suppliers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they were hardly considered independent, Mm -hmm. at least by by the laymen who were watching. And, uh, you know, I can't comment on how the judge viewed it at all, but certainly it was clear to the audience that the experts were people with financial ties to seeing ballot marking devices be successful. Uh, And then another very confused witness was um, the testing lab that had certified the equipment for the EHD. For the elections, uh, the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission. So the the testing lab that that, uh, basically gave the thumbs up for this system to be used in Georgia and really anywhere else that anyone might want to use it, right? Right, right. I was quite confused about the technology, and um, he admitted to having no real security background and not <laughs> really any long-term established security people on his on his team. That's the guy and, that tested uh, it and approved it for yes, the United yes. States of America, a guy who has very <laughs> yes. little uh, security background and doesn't understand computer security? Yes, that is correct, and basically did not have any depth on his team. And, you know, made it clear that security is not really the top priority for the certification of voting systems. Unbelievable. It was, it was just kind of unbelievable. Yeah. And, Brad, one thing I will do um, when we get these transcripts finalized, mm-hmm. which should be very, very soon, maybe even tonight, I will post on coalitionforgoodgovernance.org Mm-hmm. the transcripts from the three days of hearing. Oh, good. There will be some that will be redacted because there were some hours of the testimony that that was held behind closed doors. The state had requested that the information coming out of the some of the security findings be behind closed doors and sealed off to the press and the public. And so mm. that that part of the trial or hearing will be redacted out of the transcript. Were you allowed to see? I was not. Even you? I was not. Even I was not permitted to (laughs) read the documentation or or see our experts uh, testify. Even okay. even uh, the plaintiff in the case can't look, at, right. can't oversee that. That's incredible. Uh, Marilyn, let me uh, run through uh, very quickly and just get your quick responses here from some of the arguments that the state made. The, uh, the lawyer for the uh, state, Brian Tyson, uh, said that the uh, plaintiffs here, which, by the way, AP describes as activists for reasons I don't understand. Your plaintiffs, your election integrity advocates, I don't know why uh, they keep calling you activists in this reporting. In any event, they uh, offered this, uh, said uh, that uh, you guys offered, quote, recycled theories and speculation, unquote, rather than any real evidence of either problems with Georgia's election system or an unconstitutional burden on the right to vote in Georgia. Your response to that and your recycled theories and speculation. I think it is their way of saying they're tired of hearing us prove 
the same thing over and over, that their system has no security, no ability to be audited, and, you know, is, is completely dysfunctional and not reliable. I think they're just tired. They're saying they're tired of, <laughs> of hearing that. We, we proved it. Alex Halderman has proven that, as has Rich DeMillo, who mm-hmm. didn't testify at this trial, mm-hmm. um, has proven that they can hack the system. And in just in one of many ways, certainly there are lots of ways to hack the system. We proved that the scanners are not properly picking up all of the hand-marked votes, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they can call it speculation, but we've got proof of real ballots that were cast and not counted the, because uh, of the old technology. The lawyer for the state, again, uh, Brian Tyson, uh, charges that you, the plaintiffs, ignored all of the changes and upgrades that the state has made in recent years and that an unrealistic combination of factors would have to exist for the voting machines to be manipulated. And that jumped out at me, an unrealistic combination of factors. We saw uh, some of those factors play out in the primary when the electronic poll books failed and people simply could not cast a vote at all. What was he talking about there, and, and how do you respond to that? He would only just hope that it's true, that that all of these things that can happen somehow he, he imagines that they don't happen. Yet, I was present at one of the uh, August 11th polling places mm-hmm. when, as voters were voting, test ballots, rather than real ballots, were coming out of the machine. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> you know your machine is not working right when you are trying to vote and a test ballot comes out that doesn't even have your election on it. I- I was also sort of struck where he says that uh, you've ignored all the changes and upgrades that the state has made in recent years. But in the years before that, they have been telling us for years in Georgia that their system is unhackable. It is secure. (laughs) So what could they possibly be doing to uh, upgrade the system security at this point? (laughs) They've made it prettier. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And And they've made the outrageous touchscreen brighter, more upright, and uh-huh. now you can't you can't vote a secret ballot on them, Brad, because they are so big and bright and can be seen across the room. Yep. Maybe that was one of the improvements that they're talking about. <laughs> That's right. They're brighter <laughs> in the rooms, uh, but of course you lose your secret ballot. Uh, and of course, the, right. up, the upgrades that they made, if they made them, were because of you. They should be thanking you, Marilyn. Now, here's where I think that the state may have a good argument, uh, at least during early voting, when voters may go to uh, any early voting location, as I understand it, in, in uh, their county in Georgia to vote. Uh, in order to allow voters to cast hand-marked paper ballots during early voting in person, the state attorneys said, as, as you have been calling for, uh, the state attorney said that all locations would then have to have all possible v- uh, ballot versions for the entire county and that organizing and managing that would be a huge undertaking, especially in the most populous counties. The printing costs would be significant, they say. Uh, what's your response to, uh, to that argument? Uh, they're completely overstating the paper management. You know, uh, Americans have known how to manage uh, bundles of paper for hundreds of years. And the, the paper management for ballot style is child's play compared to trying to manage 
these super complex Rube Goldberg machines. Mm-hmm. Plus, we've got the advantage of new technology, or fairly new technology, of ballot-on-demand printers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're ballot-on-demand printers are easy to come by, and what is logical for counties like Fulton County or DeKalb County, the larger metropolitan counties that have multiple early voting places, just go ahead and stock up on your most popular ballot style, the ones within a 10-mile radius or whatever of your voting place. Mm-hmm. Keep, keep a template on hand for, for all the voting styles. But you just need a small file cabinet to do that. And then you've got your ballot-on-demand printer that can print out replacement copies. And that wouldn't be, um, we're, not we too, also, we're not too late uh, before the early voting begins to actually buy some print-on-demand uh, uh, oh, printers at this no. point? Plus, plus the state already has about 200 of them. Oh, really? And, uh, yes, oh, yes. Okay. And most counties don't need them. 120 counties don't even have but one early voting location, and it is in the election office where they already have the stock of all of the ballots right. because they are sending them out by mail. Mm-hmm. So this only affects a handful of counties. I'm not saying that it's easy, but it is a heck of a lot easier than the thousands and thousands of hours that they are spending trying to you know, program, test, install these uh, voting computers in the, in the voting place. And so, no, that's not much of a problem at all. Plus, what, one of the things that we proved in the trial... I don't know if you heard about this, Brad, but that um, turns out that you can take any of these ballots, put them through a copier, and the uh, plano copy paper will work. So if they truly could not find ballot printing, Mm -hmm. which is not even remotely a concern, Mm -hmm. they can always print more copies. They can put them on numbered balloted, you know, numbered stubs. Mm -hmm. You could do it at Kinko's. Mm. So there is no reason to use that as an excuse. Marilyn Marks, I know you're uh, uh, trying to dodge Hurricane Sally there, so let me finish up with just a couple of quick questions. Uh, the AP's uh, Kate Brumbach reported that Judge Totenberg seemed to favor the idea of paper poll book backups at the polling places, which you have called for, as a feasible solution. Uh, to a demonstrated problem with the electronic poll books. She also seemed concerned about the state's post-election auditing rules and the fact that when voters fail to completely fill in the ovals on their hand-marked paper ballots, that those are the absentee ballots that we uh, discussed with uh, coalition plaintiff Jean uh, Dufort on this show, that the, she was concerned about that, that the scanners may miss votes entirely. Do you have any insight at this point, now that this has wrapped up this this hearing, into Judge Totenberg's thinking at this hour and when a decision might be expected? I mean, as noted, early voting starts in about four weeks, and we've got uh, the the general election about two or three weeks after that. Well, I, I would not presume to to try to guess what the judge's priorities or timing. Uh, would be or what she is thinking, but she was certainly extremely focused on all of the evidence before her. She was clearly interested in issuing a timely ruling, and on Monday night, maybe Tuesday night, um, I've kind of lost track of time, um, <laughs> she asked us for a brief this morning mm-hmm. um, and um, to follow up on the public issue. 
So I think in I think based on the the quick pace with which she is moving, that she she will be issuing a ruling in plenty of time for changes to be made if she sees fit. That if she sees that changes you know should be made before this election, I think she'll be issuing quite a timely ruling. And if she does, Marilyn, uh, and and if you're able to dodge all the hurricanes, you may have to uh, come back here to tell us about it on the show. Uh, last question for you, Marilyn. If Judge Totenberg, uh, as a federal judge here, finds these uh, new Georgia systems to be unverifiable, as I have long been uh, arguing, often in opposition to some misguided uh, so-called voting systems experts, but these ballot marking devices, these touchscreen devices, I've argued are unverifiable. If she finds that to be the case, and as she did with the pre, the old system that she ordered to be uh, decertified because finding it unconstitutional, if she finds that in these systems in Georgia... What ramifications would that have for either identical uh, systems made by the same company used elsewhere or very similar systems uh, used elsewhere? I know you're uh, you come from North Carolina. They're also using these unverifiable ballot marking devices. Would a federal judge ruling on this have an effect in other states as well? Well, it, it will not be considered, of course, binding precedent for those other states. But other courts will certainly look to such a considered ruling, and, you know, Judge Totenberg in her rulings always is incredibly thorough, Mm -hmm. and, you know, details every, you know, the facts and the law, and and her opinions are well read across the country, and so I do feel that, you know, what, what she ultimately says about these machines, and probably not just for this preliminary injunction, but on the beyond... Um, this particular motion, I think it will be looked to by other courts. And we know that the nation is watching right now. I'm hearing from all over the country as as people are watching this hearing go on. It's fairly historic, as you know, Brad. Yep. And I know that that's just one of the reasons that I'm watching from out here in Los Angeles County, where we have now been saddled with similarly crappy, unverifiable touchscreen voting yeah. systems. So we're all, yeah. ca- no pressure, Marilyn, but we're all counting on you <laughs> out there. Well, that's why we, t- we, we undertook this lawsuit in federal court, Brad. Yeah. So and- that we could try to have influence beyond any, any one state's borders. As I have said for uh, many years uh, when talking to you, uh, it is uh, greatly appreciated. The work that you are doing in Georgia is not just important for that state and the upcoming election, but for all of the states and all of our elections. Uh, That's why I have long urged folks to support the good work at coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. There are not a lot of great uh, election integrity groups out there. Uh, You certainly represent one of them. Please uh, check out coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. You can also, you must also follow Marilyn on the Twitters at Marilyn R. Marks one the number one Marilyn R Marks number one where she is the uh, executive director of the coalition for good governance Marilyn Marks will uh, I hope we're speaking to you soon with maybe some good news out of Georgia I would love it Brad thank you so much for your continued interest thanks back at you stay safe 
All right, Des, just before we get out, while I was talking uh-huh. to Marilyn there, uh, I see this coming in over uh, my alert system here from the New York Times. <laughs> President Trump rebuked the CDC chief, his own CDC chief, for praising masks and for saying that a virus vaccine was unlikely to be widely available before mid 2021. Yeah, Trump was not happy with those comments. Dr. Redfield, the CDC director, had, he had told senators that even if a vaccine were available now, that vaccinating enough Americans for widespread immunity could take six to nine months. And he also said that, you know, masks are your best defense until a vaccine is available. Well, but no it, wonder he had to be re- rebuked <laughs> for that. He was telling the truth. What? How yeah. did that happen? Well, Trump has announced that a vaccine distribution plan is available uh, uh-huh. as Wednesday. And of course, it's just a plan. It's not an actual vaccine. It's right. a plan to of distribute course. that. And uh, apparently Trump was very unhappy with that. And he actually said in response to a question from Fox News's John Roberts, he yeah. said, I think he made a mistake when he said that. It's just incorrect information. I believe he was confused. Yes. Dr. Redfield was confused. The CDC director was confused. <laughs> right. Uh, and of course, we started the show uh, with a, a quote from Donald Trump from that uh, town hall, town meeting, whatever it was called on ABC, yes. discussing that we don't even need a vaccine because herd mentality will take care of it. <laughs> Good Lord. When he meant herd immunity. By the way, if you don't know what herd immunity is and what he's talking about, stop by bradblog.com. Read Ernie Canning's story from just a few days ago about this, uh, what does seem to be the plan for the administration for herd immunity to solve this crisis. It will only take about two and a half to three years, and it could result in as many as eight million people dying. Eight million Americans just in America. Thank you. Eight million Americans dying. But that will solve the problem. So So Trump says. There you go. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Okay, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and, of course, to Marilyn Marks of CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. It is always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Made possible by those of you who help us to stay on your public airwaves when you stop by bradblog.com slash donate. We really need and rely on your support to continue doing what we try to do every day right here. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>